as our particular text this morning as we continue to look at the Old Testament um, around the theme of what Jesus himself taught his apostles, that uh, essentially the whole Old Testament revelation uh, concerns Christ himself. Genesis chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, help us to understand what your own Holy Spirit says to us, the church, uh, by your word. Lord Jesus, uh, give us truth. Help us to understand your truth. Protect us from error. Uh, help us to uh, know the fullness of your gospel. Help us to rest completely in you. Guide us in understanding in such a way that as we are followers of the one who has loved us with an everlasting love, we can make that love known to this world, even this generation, as salt and light. In Christ's name, amen. 
I want to begin with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want us to recognize that this verse is a missionary verse. God the Father is the one sending his Son. Jesus Christ is the one who is sent. God the Father has a great vision to save and to redeem the world. This is his missionary design and goal. God the Father loves the world. He intends to save the world, so he gives his Son. Jesus is the missionary, the one who was given, uh, given into the world as the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, the death of the Son in the place of sinners, for their sin, bearing their iniquities, satisfying the justice of God, turning away his wrath, destroying the work of the devil. This is what Jesus is sent into the world to do, so that all who trust, believe, place their faith in the Son will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, these truths are the heart of the gospel. These are the essential elements of the gospel. Now, the Old Testament, calling of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This passage is a missionary passage. The Lord calls Abraham to leave his country, his family, and to go on a mission. That mission is to a foreign land that God is going to show him. In that land, God is going to make a great nation out of Abram, to bless him, to make Abram's name great, even changing it from Abram to Abraham, from great father to the father of nations, for a very specific purpose. God intends to make Abraham a blessing in such a manner that in Abraham all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, is about the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. Hear what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is saying that those who are of faith, such as New Testament believers, even those who are Gentiles, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is because Abraham believed the gospel that was preached beforehand to him, and he was saved. But if Abraham believed the gospel, then we must be able to see that the reality of Christ exists within the story of Abraham. But who taught the Apostle Paul to look at the story of Abraham this way. It was Christ. Paul got his understanding of the Old Testament from Jesus Christ. Now, the main point of the message this morning 
as we look at Genesis 15 is simply this. As we read the story of Abraham, as we read about the covenant that God makes with him, we need to see Christ and his mission to save us. Three main ideas will form the outline of what I want to say. They're the title of the message. Covenant, curse, Christ. I want us to begin with the concept of covenant as we find it given to us in Scripture and in Genesis 15. Because Genesis 15 is all about God making this covenant with Abraham. It's so significant that scholars and pastors and so forth call it the Abrahamic covenant. But the question is, how is this passage in Genesis 15 connected to the gospel of Christ? How does this passage connect to the idea that Jesus himself taught, that all of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, all of the Hebrew Scriptures, testify concerning him? Well, the answer is, and it's the only answer for biblical we could possibly give, and that is the New Testament itself makes this connection. Because the apostles make this connection. Based on how they were taught by Jesus to read the Hebrew Scriptures. So first of all, let's begin with the question, what is a covenant? Now, when a word shows up in Scripture over 300 times, you have to believe it is a significant concept that's being spoken of. And we find the concept of covenant showing up more than 300 times in the Scriptures. Most of those, the largest majority in the Old Testament. There we understand that a covenant can be between two people, like between Jonathan and David, or between married couples, because marriage is a covenant between a husband and wife. But the majority that we find in the Old Testament are covenants that involve God making his covenant with his people, and then that covenant being referred to repeatedly in so many contexts throughout the Old Testament. The main focus of the concept of covenant in the Bible is the divine covenant or covenants that God has made with his people. Now, God's covenant can be described this way. This is pulling together the fullness of what a covenant concept is. But it's how God establishes and expresses his sworn purpose, plan, promise, pledge, oath, commitment, vow to the provisions, stipulations, conditions, and content of his intention to save his people by his own sovereign power, ultimately through the seed of the woman. Now, the biblical idea of covenant, more briefly, can be stated this way. It is the way God has bound himself to save his people. And this covenant with Abraham is how God has planned, bound himself in his plan to save the world through Jesus Christ. So what do the provisions and promises of the covenant as we see it in Genesis 15 actually mean? Well, there's, there's three things that are principally in view in Genesis 15 in terms of God's covenantal relationship with Abraham. One is righteousness by faith. Two is an heir or offspring or descendants, even more numerous than can be counted. And then three would be the land, the promised land, those three things. Now, what's most important about this, it's the New Testament that tells us how to understand these three things, how to understand this 
condition of the covenant in terms of righteousness by faith, how to understand the promise to Abraham that he's going to have an heir, how to understand the promise to Abraham that he's going to have this land. First provision of the covenant, then, is righteousness that is by faith. Genesis 15, 6. And he, meaning Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, it's the New Testament that authoritatively tells us what this means. We find it in Romans uh, chapter 4 in the first three verses where the Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, meaning Jewish ancestry? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Now, we know from the context of what Paul is going to say that he's going to hearken back to Genesis chapter 15, to the covenant. So the context here, Paul's thinking, is the covenant. What did Abraham find? Well, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in order to state his argument to Jews and Gentiles there at Rome, in order to say to the church, we are all saved by faith in Christ and not by works, the Apostle Paul goes to Genesis chapter 15. He goes to the Abrahamic covenant. He goes to this passage to teach both Jews and Gentiles, to teach the church at Rome, the very heart of the gospel. How are we saved by faith and not by works? What does Paul do? He anchors his gospel truth back to Abraham. He anchors it in the Abrahamic covenant. He points out God counted Abraham as righteous, not by his works, but by his faith. That in believing God, God credited to him as righteousness. Salvation, therefore, is not on the basis of works, but it is through faith. God crediting righteousness through Abraham's faith. Now, what that makes clear is that the Abrahamic covenant is about salvation. It's about the gospel. It's about teaching that we're saved by grace through faith. That's the first provision, promise, of the Abrahamic covenant. Second, God promises Abraham an heir, a son, a descendant. God says in Genesis 15, 5, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. So in Abraham wanting a son to make sure that he had a son who was going to be his heir, God promises that, but he promises so much more. God promises to Abraham that he's going to have more offspring, more descendants than he can possibly number. He's going to have more people that were going to call him Father Abraham than he can possibly imagine. So the big question, how did Jesus teach us to understand that promise that God made to Abraham? How do we interpret this correctly? Well, we return again to the Apostle Paul. 
Paul says that God's purpose was to make Abraham the father of a great multitude in a salvation sense. Abraham was to be the spiritual father of all of those who would believe and be justified. That's the meaning of this promise in the Abrahamic covenant. Well, how do we know this? Well, because once again, it's what the Apostle Paul himself teaches. Of Romans chapter 4, we look at verse 11, where Paul describes God's purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all of those who believe without being circumcised, that is, the father of all the Gentiles, righteousness, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, meaning the father of the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had before he was ever circumcised. So, Paul is teaching that this fatherhood of Abraham is to be understood in a spiritual and salvation sense. Now, he repeats that in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 29, for he says, Abraham is the father of all of those who believe. Quoting, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul is saying to Gentiles that if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. If you belong to Christ, then you're exactly what God spoke of to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. You are that. You are part of that great multitude that no one can number. You are part of those who rightly can say, Abraham is our father. This, by the way, is the only interpretation of Genesis 15 that we find in the New Testament. There's not some other interpretation that says, oh yeah, it really also means the biological seed. In fact, if you go to Romans chapter 9, the apostle is going to say, not all those who are descended from Abraham are really Abraham's children. And you have Jesus in John chapter 8 challenging the Jews themselves. You are not of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil, who's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So we come then to Galatians 3.29. Abraham, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's offspring. You're heirs according to the promise. The phrase heirs according to the promise anchored in Genesis 15. Now further... The New Testament tells us that not only is it a spiritual seed, but it will be fulfilled in all of those who believe. Revelation 7, verse 9. John's vision, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, tribe, people, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed, in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the promise of an heir to Abraham is fulfilled in all of those who are saved. It's fulfilled in all of those who are believers, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, all of them, all of us, are the spiritual seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. 
a great multitude that no one can number. Then the land promise. The land promise. The third part of Genesis 15 and the covenant that God makes. The New Testament interprets the land promise also in salvation terms. Again, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir, now this is very clear in the Greek, very clear in the English, heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now the land promise, you know, is from the uh, Nile River, the river in Egypt, to the great river Euphrates. That is to say, clear uh, geographical definitional aspects to what we have commonly called the Holy Land, uh, the land of Canaan, uh, Palestine, these different designations. But understand how Jesus taught the Apostle Paul to interpret the significance of the promise. Those who are heirs of the promise are heirs not of just the land. They are heirs of the world. Uh, Paul is saying that the real promise here far out, far exceeds what we find in specifically the geographical boundaries of Genesis 15. And that the inheritance of that promise comes through the salvation that is the righteousness by faith. So in the Abrahamic covenant, even the land is defined by salvation. But what is it to inherit the world what is it to be an heir of Abraham and to inherit the world? Well, the book of Hebrews also likewise speaks to the fact that it's not specifically just the land of Palestine. That truly there's something else going on in the promise that reflects the nature of salvation. So when Abraham is first mentioned in chapter 11, Maybe not the first time he's mentioned in chapter 11, but what he is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 and 10, by faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Then further, verse 13 through 16, these all meaning the others of the Old Testament who were believers, who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the promised land is called a city. The promised land is called an even better country, a heavenly country. And that goes far beyond the land of Palestine. In fact, where is this promise fulfilled and described for us? In the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. The first three verses. The Apostle John writes this about the consummation, about the age to come. 
He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now the point is this. Jesus taught the apostles of the New Testament how to read the Old Testament. And when we find the apostle Paul or others making references to Abraham and to the covenant that God made with Abraham, we have to know and understand that the right interpretation the interpretation that Jesus was concerned that the apostles have was what we find the apostles actually saying, connecting the covenant that God had made with Abraham to the salvation that we find in the gospel, making sure that the New Testament believer, Jew or Gentile, understood that Christ was written large into the story of Abraham. That's why. In Galatians 3, beginning at verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of of faith. That is why Jesus defended himself to his Jewish antagonist in John chapter 8 this way. He said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, the connection then between Genesis 15, God establishing his covenant with Abraham and the story of Christ is that which the apostles were taught to make, to make that connection. Because it's how Jesus taught them to make that connection. That means we are compelled to see Christ in this covenant. And to see what God has covenanted with Abraham, he covenanted with all who believe like Abraham, all who are his children by faith. Now, the second word is the word curse. Although this word does not show up specifically or explicitly in Genesis chapter 15, it is deeply connected to the ritual that we find there between verses 7 to 18. So let me just explain this. We read this and we see that God instructed Abraham to bring a heifer uh, and a goat and a ram, each three years old, and then a dove and a pigeon. And these animals were killed. Uh, the livestock was split. Uh, the dove and the, and the pigeon were just slain. Uh, then they're laid out on the ground in such a way that there's an actual walkway, pathway between these animals. That's how they're laid out. Now what you need to know about this ritual is this. Standard practice. That is to say, we have archaeological evidence that tells us between 35 hundred years ago and 4,000 years ago 
so we can go all the way back to the time of Abraham and maybe even earlier, we find that this is a standard practice ritual whenever covenants are made. In fact, the language of covenant making is called cutting the covenant in reference to the ant, to the uh, ritual in which animals are slain, separated this way, and then the parties to the covenant are going to walk through these animals. And that's the second part of the standard practice. The parties to the covenant pass through the slain animals, just like we read that happens in Genesis 15. Now that has symbolism. It's symbolism of the deepest significance. It meant, in terms of the two parties walking through the the animals, it meant this, that if either of the parties should ever fail to keep the requirements of the covenant, then they are calling down upon them a curse in such a way that let it be unto me as it is unto the slain animals if ever I should fail to fulfill all of the provisions of the covenant. Now, there's a technical term for that kind of idea. It's called a self-maledictory oath. Better, a self-maledictory curse. Now, some of us learned about these self-maledictory curses when we were very, very, very small. And it wasn't out of Bible study. It's whenever our friends wanted to make sure that we were going to keep a promise. And so we would essentially have to do this. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye if I should ever not keep this promise to you. We, we learned this as kids, you know. Uh, parents, are you telling me the truth? Cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye, Mom. Yes, I'm telling you the truth. We would call down this self-maledictory curse upon us. Now, I never saw a youngster lie, say that, fall over dead. So probably God didn't take those maledictory, self-maledictory oaths with any great seriousness. But when, when we come to understand this is the nature of this, we see how incredibly significant this is that the parties to the covenant are calling upon a curse to be upon them if they do not keep all of the conditions, all of the provisions, all of the promises, all of the requirements, all of their vows with respect to the covenant. Now let's look and see how this plays out between God and Abraham. First, things get set up. The ceremony is all set up, ready to begin. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. God renders Abraham helpless. God renders Abraham as though he were dead in himself. Don't miss the symbolism of what God does with Abraham. And a great dread falls upon Abraham as God puts him to sleep. Don't miss the significance of this great terror and dead that fall, dread that falls upon Abraham. In the Old Testament, we find any time anyone ever had a very close encounter with the presence and holiness of God, the response and reaction was feeling like you were entirely undone. You felt dread. You felt fear. You were terror-stricken. 
But the point is, the sleep prevents Abraham from walking with God through the slain animals. It prevents him from doing so. Verse 17. Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down, it was dark, and behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, these two items, a smoking pot and a flaming torch, clearly represent God. God passes through the slain animals. God presents himself as both parties to the covenant. He passes through in the form of a smoking oven and in the form of a flaming torch. God and God alone passes through. God and God alone is represented in terms of the parties of the covenant. What does that mean? Clearly, it means substitution and representation. God substitutes himself for Abraham, and God represents Abraham as he passes through the slain animals. God undertakes on Abraham's behalf to keep all of the requirements of the covenant. And God undertakes on Abraham's behalf to take on himself the self-maledictory oath, the curse, if he should fail to keep the covenant. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us to look at the gospel of our salvation through the lens of the covenant with Abraham. God initiated this covenant, not Abraham. God takes on all of the obligations of the covenant on Abraham's behalf. God substitutes himself to represent the human side in the covenant. It is God who is the one who saves. This is a covenant of pure grace from beginning to end. Thus Abraham and all of Abraham's children by faith are substituted and represented by God himself in the covenant. Now that means we are absolutely going to be saved. Even if God himself must take on the curse of this covenant. So that brings us to our third point, Christ. Jesus taught his apostles that his death on the cross demonstrated that he bore the curse of the covenant. Again, Galatians chapter 3. I want us to think about verses 10 through 13. Paul turns to the book of the law, the law of Moses, to incorporate his quotation here into his Genesis 15 interpretation. This is how Paul connects Jesus to the reality of the covenantal curse. Verse 10. For all who, who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, explaining Paul's key ideas in verse 10. Unless you can perfectly keep God's covenant as it is expressed in his law, the book of the law, you are under a curse. That is why there's no salvation by works. We are actually under the curse of God because we are not keeping his law perfectly which means we're not keeping our part of the covenant. So there's no justification by works. We are, in fact, covenant breakers, and we are under the curse. Then verse 13, Paul proves that Christ died under the curse by citing Deuteronomy 21:23. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree, referring then to the death of Christ upon the cross. So that, again, in verse 13, Paul makes this most important point. Christ was substituted. Jesus substituted himself and represented us by becoming a curse for us. So that the blessing, as Paul says, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews who believe. Christ becomes the curse. Christ is cursed in order to redeem us from the curse. Professor O. Palmer Robertson in his, his book, The Christ of the Covenants, puts it this way. By the grace of God, Christ has substituted himself in the place of covenant violators. He has died in their stead, taking on himself the curses of the covenant. We are reminded of this in a very, very sweet old American folk hymn. It goes this way. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. In conclusion then, Genesis 15. God's covenant with Abraham, it's a covenant of grace. It's ultimately about the reality of Christ in the life of Abraham That is to say, God was in Christ in this covenant. Christ substituted himself for Abraham and for all of those who are Abraham's children by faith to represent us all with respect to the conditions and provisions and requirements of the covenant, even to bear that curse on our behalf in order to secure our redemption. This morning... 
think on these things as we come to the Lord's table. It is his covenant that is fully on the mind of Jesus as he breaks the bread and says these words, take, eat, this is my body, and then taking up the cup and giving thanks, he says, drink ye all of it, for this blood is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. When we come to the table and our celebration, as Paul says, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, we are proclaiming through the bread and through the wine that Jesus became a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us Christ, the one who died in our place, bearing the dreadful curse for our souls, that we might have everlasting life in you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.